The reading is Acts chapter 13, verse 38 to 39, found on page 1108 on the Pew Bibles and also on the screen. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Thank you very much, Abigail, for reading to us. Um, Let me start with a question. Here's the question. Will I be forgiven? And I don't know if that's a question you recognize. This is going to date me a little. It is the question which the singer Alanis Morissette asked in the last line, well, not quite the last line of one of her songs, near the end of one of her songs. One more stupid question, she calls it, will I be forgiven? I'm getting blank looks from TNG at this stage. I am about 25 years out of date talking about Alanis Morissette, but I did a little check with Google, and actually the theme of forgiveness is right up there in more contemporary music, often talking about forgiveness when um, two lovers are estranged, they need to forgive each other, that sort of thing, but it it does include sometimes the, the theme of forgiveness from God. So I, I checked. I don't know if you've heard of these names. If you haven't heard of Alanis Morissette, Leona Lewis, Jay-Z, Bieber, Kanye West, all, all have got songs on this sort of theme. It's just interesting to me that this is a theme that we keep returning to. So I don't think, uh, I disagree with Alanis Morissette, that it's a stupid question. Could anything really be more important? Will I be forgiven? Um, And in that song I mentioned, there is no answer. Um, I wonder what she would have made of this statement that we just had read uh, from the Apostle Paul that uh, we're going to consider tonight. Through Jesus, he said, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Uh, Whenever we're thinking about Christianity, for ourselves or talking about it with other people, it really makes a lot of sense to go right back to what the first century Christians believed. It was lovely hearing from Tom how it was the Bible, those first century Christians' words about um, Jesus Christ that hit home with him. It makes so much sense to do that because that way we're in touch with genuine historical Christianity. And this little statement that I'm going to revisit two or three times tonight on the way through, is taken from one of the earliest recorded Christian sermons. It's written down in Acts chapter 13 by a historian, Luke, who was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul's. Now, we looked at the whole sermon. It's a long sermon, 13 to 52. I can't do the maths on that in uh, Acts chapter 13. Lots of verses of Bible. We looked at the whole sermon he preached last week, but this week I just want to concentrate on that one sentence. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. There are words which highlight, first of all, our need of forgiveness. And maybe that question, will I be forgiven, isn't, in fact, one that you ask particularly often. But for Paul to make that the central plank of his message suggests He thinks it's a question everybody should ask. Uh, When he said this, 
It wasn't something he was aiming at his hearers specifically, as if they were a special case, uh, particularly in need of forgiveness. It wasn't that he was speaking to a hardcore group of psychopathic killers or sex offenders or something like that. This is something he would have said to anyone and everyone on the assumption that we all need forgiveness. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So if Paul had been out, I would think Saturday is the crowded day in Cambridge. I don't know if that's right, but it seems particularly crowded in Cambridge with everybody in shopping. If he'd been out on the crowded streets of Cambridge yesterday, yeah, he'd have seen a whole variety of people there, young and old, large and small, some highly academic perhaps, others much less educated, some comfortably off, others begging for their very existence maybe, some with lots of family and friends, others on their own, or in a world of their own. So all very different, but one thing he'd be certain of, every single one of them, that each would need forgiveness. Now if we ask why, the answer lies within the phrase itself, the forgiveness of sins. It is our sin that needs to be forgiven. And that's a condition which the Bible claims that every single one of us has. I guess at one level we probably all agree that our lives aren't perfect. Um, Just imagine, for the sake of argument, that up on the screen here, instead of projecting the words of our songs, we'd actually been watching a film of your life. Um, It's not completely implausible that actually... I don't know where the statistic came from or how old it is, but I remember hearing Lavinia Byrne, the radio presenter, saying once that on average... In city centre London, London, in one day, you might appear on a total of 400 hours of closed-circuit television. So that's reality. You are on screen somewhere, probably, if you're in London or about um, wherever you happen to go during the course of the day. You might well feature on screen. So just imagine your life has been caught in its entirety on film. And if we can sort of... uh, make the image work for us. Imagine it's sort of digitally enhanced in some way to include not just all the deeds you've ever done and all the words you'd spoken, but somehow we've got even all your thoughts, all your desires, all your inner drives. And it's all there. Many of the things you've forgotten about are the things that no one else knows about. Imagine it's on screen and we were all to see it. I'm sure there's lots in the film that you would want to be erased, especially if all the other characters who appear in the film of your life were invited to the showing as well. I'm glad it's not my life that we're watching on screen. But of course, as far as the Bible is concerned, that's not the half of it. The horror of our sin is not particularly that we've offended other people, It's that behind each of those acts that mar our lives, there's an unspoken attitude of rebellion against God. In spite of the fact that God made me, in spite of the fact that I belong to him, in spite of the fact that it is God's world and he's in charge, I ignore him by nature. And I assume, just like Tom was saying, I assume center stage. It's all about living for me or winning the world. I live as if he doesn't matter. So much so, actually, that I'm hardly aware I'm doing it by nature. 
I used to live up in Manchester um, at one point, and I was a tenant in a council house at that stage. And through some mistake, it was a mistake made, my rent accidentally stopped being paid by the church I worked for at the time. It was unknown to me, and it went on actually for quite a while, until some months later, the letters began to come from the council. And at first, they were quite moderate in tone. You haven't paid, please settle up. And then they began to get a little stronger in tone. And the, um, the treasurer still wasn't on the case. He didn't pay up. But the, the letters got stronger. If you don't pay up soon, we will have to press charges. In the end, it was pretty insistent. Pay up today or you're on the street tomorrow. Sort of language like that. The message was very clear. It is not your house, Simon Scott. Stop behaving as if you own the place. And God could say something like that to us about our lives. Your life isn't actually yours. It belongs to me, he could say. Or about our world. Stop strutting around in my world, God could say, as if you own the place. I said, what if the people of your lives are watching the screen? What if God were to watch the film footage of our lives with us? If we really saw what our unspoken attitude to him was, that we ignore him, that we dismiss him as an irrelevance. I'm sure we'd be ashamed, wouldn't we? Even if, by comparison with other people, I managed to convince myself that I've lived a pretty good life. Still, in fact, it's my attitude to God that's the really significant thing. I don't know if this example will help. I've always found this... um, Help me to see sin's seriousness in relation to God. Suppose there was an excellent sailor and he's working on an old ship. He's sailed the seven seas. He's very experienced. He's safety conscious. He's hardworking. He's committed to the welfare of the crew. He's a real team player. He's trusted by the captain because he's so reliable. He's shown it over many years. Imagine that sailor. Just one thing I didn't tell you about him. That's the flag that's flying above the ship. The flag above the ship on the mast is a skull and crossbones. He's a pirate. Suddenly I tell you that bit of information and it changes everything, doesn't it? Good sailor he may be, but it's in a bad cause. And in fact, if you think about it, because he's a good sailor, that means he advances the cause of piracy more. He might hold up that wicked cause if he wasn't such a good sailor. The point is this. I don't know if it's clear or not. Any really significant evaluation of a person's behavior has to take into account not just our actions, which we might at times think we're quite good, but our motivations as well. Not just what we do, but the whole direction of of life, um, and particularly the direction in which life is lived in relation to God. To be a reasonably good person and to ignore God is to be a pirate in God's world. It's to be in opposition to God. And to be in opposition to God is therefore to need forgiveness urgently. The Bible is absolutely clear that my sin must either be forgiven before I die or it will be punished after death. 
so I won't be able to ignore God or defy him forever. To treat him the way we do is a terrible crime. And if we're not forgiven, the punishment for that crime will be terrible. So hence our our need for forgiveness. But Paul is clear about a second thing, the provision of forgiveness. Let me just remind you of those words again in verse 38. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. There was a lecturer in a teaching hospital who was trying to demonstrate the danger of too much alcohol. And to prove his point, he placed a live worm in a glass of water and another live worm in a glass of whiskey. And at the end of his lecture, he turned to the two glasses. And the worm in the water was wriggling about strongly, but the worm in the whiskey was still, obviously, stone dead. So the lecturer turned to his audience of medical students and asked, what is the lesson to be learned? And a quick reply came from the back. If you've got worms, drink lots and lots of whiskey. (laughs) I dare say it's not an appropriate remedy. Okay, Don't remember that bit of the sermon. What is God's remedy for our sin? Well, let's notice to begin with that it is a person through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And I think that's so important. It means we're not talking about a vague mystical experience, but a figure of history, Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, a real person who lived in Israel 2,000 years ago. And if we'd been in the right place at the right time, we could have seen him for ourselves. I know there are lots of modern-day theories about Jesus. Uh, Some claim to be serious attempts uh, to uh, give us a new and improved Jesus for today's world. Others are simply bizarre, by the way. I like the philologist John Allegro, who suggested that Jesus was just a code word for an ancient sex cult inspired by magic mushrooms, which was a theory that did not very much for Allegro's academic reputation, and which, in the words of one critic, gave mushrooms a bad name. (laughs) The only day you've got to ask whether the modern-day reconstructions of Jesus Christ 2,000 years on, are more likely to get things more right than the accounts of people from his own day or not. At the very least, surely, those accounts that we've got in the Bible have a fair claim to be heard as evidence about him. So I wonder if you're prepared to read or reread one of the gospel accounts of Jesus. Tom helpfully said, didn't he, that it was actually looking at the Bible, dangerous thing to do, that gave him some of the uh, information about Jesus that really made a difference. Um, I meant to bring with me... India, is there a gospel at at the end of that pew? Thank you. We've got copies of Mark's gospel that you could easily pick up on the table at the back to have a read for yourself. Just ask me for one and pick them up on the way out. Interestingly, if you read Mark's account, this is a funny thing about it, you find that one third of it is actually about the last week of Jesus' life, which is not normally how we would write a biography to focus on somebody's death. But the point is this, that 
that the hour for which Jesus came into the world was, if you like, the hour in which he left it. It was when he died, which was the moment he made provision for our forgiveness. Jesus' words, as he was crucified, explain it all. Initially, if you remember, Jesus said absolutely nothing while his enemies mocked and jeered. Then there was that extraordinary darkness, and all was quiet and still. And then suddenly Jesus shattered the silence with a cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an interesting question. What's, what's he mean by that? Well, think of our sin as being our attempt to forsake God. So I go my way, not God's. The consequence of that, the Bible says, that I will be God-forsaken. In other words, God gives me what I've chosen, really. If I choose to forsake God, then forsaken by God is what I'll be. Um, That is the full horror of what will happen in hell if I die unforgiven. But listen to that cry of Jesus on the cross again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because Jesus had forsaken God. He never did go his own way. But at the cross, Jesus Christ suffered the spiritual torment of hell. God treated him as if he lived the life on that film, showing Simon Scott's life or your life, as if he thought and said and done all those things. He was literally God-forsaken which means that my sin has been punished. Uh, He's taken it from me so that if I accept his offer, I need not face that punishment myself. And I can know how much I'm loved, that I'm accepted. Makes sense of that point that was made about knowing that I'm a, a child of God, a son adopted into his family, loved like that. A few years back, there was a bombing which happened in a church in Cape Town, um, South Africa. There was a very moving illustration of what happened at the cross in that uh, incident. It was halfway through a normal Sunday service. Some gunmen burst into the building. They were lobbing grenades and spraying the congregation with bullets. And there was an English 17-year-old there called Richard Oakill sitting between two girlfriends. Um, And when one grenade rolled across the floor towards them, instinctively he threw himself on on top of it to protect them. Um, They were unharmed but he was killed. Uh, That's heroic love, isn't it, that sort of... You could probably match it with other stories but it still seems to me it's heroic and amazing. But Jesus' love is even more amazing because he gave his life not for his friends but for those who'd lived against him, like you and me. If you want to understand the Christian faith, someone said, you must begin with the wounds of Christ, the provision of forgiveness. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So all that remains is my last point, the acceptance of forgiveness. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, Paul said. In other words, you've heard about it. Accept it. What are you going to do? Take it for yourself. 
there was an occasion when Muhammad Ali, who was at the time the, the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, was flying interstate across America for a title fight. And suddenly the flight's captain announced, ladies and gentlemen, please fasten your seatbelts. We're about to enter a storm, and I'm expecting some severe turbulence. It was a very blunt announcement. It was meant to be. And everybody immediately jumped to it and did as they were told, except Muhammad Ali, who sat happily in his first-class seat without fastening his belt. When the stewardess came through the cabin checking everyone, she had to repeat the captain's message to Muhammad Ali. Sir, she said, we're entering a storm, and the captain has asked everyone to wear their seatbelts. Ali replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. But she was equal to that. Quick as a flash, she answered him, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> a good point. Pretty arrogant if you're five miles up in the sky or have a high, entering a storm in a, a big piece of aluminium to say you don't need a seatbelt, isn't it? But it's no less arrogant to say, in effect, Super Simon don't need no forgiveness, thanks. When you think about the way God provided forgiveness, that simply can't be right, can it? If Jesus Christ had to die, then obviously no other route is open to us for receiving forgiveness. Or God would surely have taken it, made it available that way. If I could have made it into friendship with God by trying harder, like the Pharisee in that other reading we had, trying to do the right thing, trying harder to please him in some way or other, then Jesus' death need not have happened. Do you really think God would have gone through with that if it wasn't absolutely necessary to do it that way? Of course not. Moreover, would Jesus have endured that spiritual torment if these weren't issues of massive importance for every one of us here? So let me return to that question I started with. Will I be forgiven? I'm hoping that some here will at least commit themselves to finding out more um, if there's even the merest possibility of the Christian message being true, you surely can't just shrug it off and do nothing. It must be worth finding out more. And we've got a course happening soon called Explore. I know there are little flyers like that lurking around uh, about the course. The course is designed to help you do that, to find out more. Maybe for others, finding out more is not what you need. It's actually time for you to accept his forgiveness, to ask him for it, and to receive it. And that will be the best decision you ever make. There is a cost to it, but the fact that Jesus loved us enough to go to the cross ought surely to reassure us that whatever changes he makes in our lives will only be for the best. I'd be very happy to talk uh, to anyone after this who wants to know how you can accept it and uh, make it your own. By all means, come and talk to me afterwards. Or I think I put out on the table as well, next to the Gospels, little booklets like this that explain how you can accept the gift from God. But please, don't delay unnecessarily. Forgiveness is not automatic. This is a message which demands a personal response, the acceptance of forgiveness. Those words of Paul's one last time. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening.